somehow the conversation degrades more and more. Um, and my first sergeant, he's standing there with his rifle. And so they're all kind of, it's like, you know, showdown at the AOK corral or whatever. And uh, one of the bad guys essentially tells my first sergeant, put your weapon down. And the first sergeant's like, that ain't happening, right? Well, somehow it escalates immediately to this dude raises up his weapon and they're like oh shit well my best friend he's the psd squad leader for the battalion commander so he's standing right next to the, the battalion commander and all hell breaks loose marshall in the middle now we're rocking and rolling now we're rocking and rolling finally got it yeah what's going on sergeant major good to see you yeah good to see you here's life uh, here's my life right now this is how i live life right there <laughs> oh wow so where where is that where are you so i'm currently in um a town called lake linden michigan which is way north in michigan um houghton chastel area calumet that, that area of michigan um so it's in the up and uh yeah so it's a it's a lake back there. I full time RV, so I just travel all the time. Yeah. So so okay. So let's start there. Tell me, you know, hey, honey, let's just buy an RV and just woo woo. <laughs> you know, tell me about that. It was actually my wife's idea more than mine. Um, so I knew about um, three or four years ago I was going into uh, my battalion CSM job, and I knew that. I was going to retire most likely after that job. And we owned an, a fifth wheel prior to that, a smaller fifth wheel than what we have now. But um, so we were kind of debating on what we were going to do. And our, our initial plan was we were going to go back and live in Iowa. That's where my wife's from. And so we had done some, um, some, we were looking for land and whatnot. Anyhow, land in Iowa is crazy expensive. And um, so expensive that it's cheaper just to buy an old farm, tear the house down and build a new one. And um, so we were getting kind of frustrated with the, the search. And um, one day my wife was just like, hey, what if we just went full time RVing for a little while? OK, so um, a couple of years ago, we bought a, a bigger camper than what we had. We, we, we had a built knowing that we were going to full time in it. Um, and so we ordered it from the factory and, um, yeah. And then we just spent the last, you know, two years of my time in the army. We just kind of developed the plan of, how, you know, what does it mean to full-time RV? And, and then, uh, you know, I retired last year, which COVID had a say in everything. Right. And, uh, so it was kind of a struggle to, to get through the summer. We hit the road on one September of 2020, and um, so he had to get through the summer of out processing from the army. Plus, you know, we got rid of 90% of our household goods. So you're trying to have yard sales and sell all your furniture and your cars. And, um, but we did it. Um, and, uh, you know, in July, August, we just had week after week of, you know, yard sales, just selling all our stuff. And yeah, so then one September hit the road and we've been traveling ever since. Well, that's great. Well, congratulations. Uh, we'll we'll wait to talk about you know how it's been or what you think about until maybe <laughs> later. We'll we'll let you you know get a break on that. What it's what time is it there? It's ten o'clock. Ten o'clock ish in the yeah, morning. Yeah, I'm on. 
I'm on Eastern time. So it's just 11 o'clock here. Oh, that's great. So. That's great. But it's probably a little cooler here than where you're at. Yeah, it's nice and warm <laughs> here. You know, I got up and and put my you know running shoes on and went to the gym this morning. And but I see you got long sleeves on. Oh yeah, yeah. I woke up and it was about 54 degrees. And uh, uh, but now it'll get up to 75 today. But that's what we did. That's why we did it. We said, hey, our goal is to chase 70 to 70 degree weather. And so can't can't argue with that. <laughs> that's great so tell me where you're from you said your wife what's your wife's name her name's amanda um so she's originally from iowa but i grew up um in indiana um i uh in indianapolis my dad was in the army i'm an army brat um but not traditional and um he actually like taught recruiting school and so i mean he was back then it was called a um a double O Romeo instead of a 79 Romeo. But um, so when I say an army brand, I didn't live on necessarily army bases because he was out recruiting most of my life. Um, and so we grew up in Indianapolis around Fort Benjamin Harrison. Um, that's where uh, recruiting school used to be back in the eighties and nineties. And um, so, yeah, I mean, um, I lived most of my life in Indiana. Um, he recruited in the battalion there and then moved over to recruiting school at Fort Ben. And uh, then he retired and we stayed in that area. And um, I finished growing up in Indianapolis, uh, the northeast side of Indianapolis. And um, and then uh, when I was 18, I graduated high school and I went in the army and I've been gone ever since, really. So <laughs> did you like know from a fairly young age that you wanted to, to go in the army? Or No, um, I actually had no desire to join the army. Um, I always grew up with this mentality that I was going to be a police officer. Um, and I, I mean, I watched my dad in the army, but my take on the army was this recruiting world, you know? Um, and so I just had no desire to do that, but my, I have an older brother who went in the army. He's about three years older than me. And so he went in the army and, um, I was probably, Oh, I was probably, coming out of my freshman year of high school is my guess if I remember right and anyhow I went down to see his graduation from basic training and I just saw how it changed him um, he was a cab scout he went through training at Fort Knox back then um, is where they had OSIT and so I just saw this how it changed him maturity and growing up and and whatnot and I and th it was it wasn't until that moment that I was like I'm going to join the army and um, so but up to that point I had no desire, not, not, not like a hatred for it. I just like, just, I want to be a cop. And, and it wasn't like I grew up in this HUA army world because my dad was in the recruiting world. And back then, just like now, I mean, recruiting is a stressful job. And so um, the idea of that being, that's my idea of the army didn't seem too, appeas <laughs> too appealing back then, but, uh, but yeah. So my brother really, uh, him joining the army is what really made me think that's what I want to do. And I wasn't ready to go to college. Um, I knew that I wasn't ready to go to college. And uh, so that wasn't appealing to me either. So what do you do when you're 18? And most police departments aren't going to hire you, you know, until you're probably 21 anyways. So I went in the army and I went in the army with the concept of, in my brain of, 
I'm going to go in the army for five years and get out. Cause as a military policeman, which is what my MOS was is five years, five year initial enlistment. And so I said, I'm going to go in and I'm just going to get out and be a cop. And so I did my first five years and, and, uh, actually around year four, um, I got picked up to go recruiting, uh, actually around year three, I got picked up to go recruiting in the corporate recruiting program. So, um, the corporate and back then I was the second class of corporate recruiters. So, and back then the corporate recruiting program, uh, was only a 12 month program. And now I think if they do it still, it's 24 months, but back then it was only 12 months. And so, um, I dropped a packet, got selected, and I actually went back to my hometown to recruit, recruited out of my old high school, recruited actually out of the station I was recruited from in Indianapolis. Um, and my intent, my, my honest plan was, I'll go back and recruit and then I'll just get out and go be a cop. And um, so I got out or got back to Indiana. I'm recruiting. It was rough. It's pre 9-11 timeframe. Um, it was just a stressful, hard time to recruit. And um, and then, I, but during that time, you know, I'm living out in the economy with normal people, you know, civilians. And I just was like, you know, this really isn't that hard. Being in the army isn't that hard. And if you're willing to accept the values and, and the expectations of what the army instills in you and expects of you. And so I just re-enlisted and said, you know what, I'm going to re-enlist. Uh, I don't want to get out and be a cop. And um, so I re-enlisted to go to Fort Campbell. Um, and uh, that was still before 9-11. And then um, I actually wound up trying to extend on recruiting for a year. By the time they denied it, I had already been there longer than my year. <laughs> so that's recruiting for you, right? So they give you, hey, you have 12 months. Okay, well, I want to extend. Well, we're going to kick this can down the road a little bit. And then by the time they even denied it, I'd already been there longer than my 12 months. So um, I wound up doing 18 months on recruiting. And then I PCS to Fort Campbell right after 9-11. Uh, I got to Fort Campbell in October of 2001. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's essentially how I wound up staying in the Army. Were, were, what was your MOS when you first went in? Were you an MP? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been an MP my whole career. Uh, went in as an MP and retired as an MP. So were you, were you good at all the weapons and all the, I mean, MP, <laughs> look, you guys got everything from nuclear weapons to little, you know, machetes <laughs> and stuff. Y'all got crazy weapons. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I'll be honest. I'll tell you, like when I was a soldier, just like brand new in the army. So, you know, I, I joined in 1996. I went to basic in August of 96, graduated OSIT December of 96. First duty station was Fort Drum, New York. Um, didn't know anything about Fort, didn't even know what Fort Drum, New York was. Um, I was just a normal soldier. I wasn't um, this outstanding, great PT stud, expert on weapons. Um, you know, I just, I was just an average Joe. And I mean, I was smart. I didn't get in trouble. You know, I didn't, I didn't cause problems. I wasn't a, uh, you know, I didn't, I was just no average Joe. I mean, that's the only way I could describe myself. You know, you wouldn't have been like that dude's going to be a SAR major one day. I mean, or, you know, or he sucks. I mean, like I wasn't either one of those and uh, I did my job. I showed up to work. I did my job. Um, I was smart enough to stay out of trouble. 
Um, and, uh, it, so to be honest with you, like my first five years in the army were pretty normal. Um, I, I think, I think I outshined a lot of my peers and by, by being good and being smart, but I wasn't a, I'm not a 300 PT guy. I'm not a, you know, I mean, later on in my career, I, I got better at shooting. Um, but when I was a private, I mean, I qualified marksman probably on all my weapons, you know, and, and hell, I tell, I, I was a training battalion star major and I would tell my privates all the time, um, you know, like I'd have to embrief them when they came in. And I would tell them, hey, you know how many push-ups I had to do when I was a private? Well, at first I asked them, how many push-ups do you have to do? And they're like, oh, we got to do 43. And I'm like, well, I joined 20 years ago. Do you know how many push-ups I had to do? And they're like, 80 or 70? Or and I'm like, no, 43. And you know how many I did? 45. I barely graduated AIT, you know? I mean, I just just wasn't a super strong, super PT guy. And I try to make them know that. Like, I'm just an, I was just an average Joe, but here I am today you know battalion star major so so yeah that was uh really the beginning of the career oh that's great that's great uh you know were you uh did you ever like find yourself falling out of a run or not being able to hang physically at a time that maybe pushed you or did you find that you were really good at something that somebody else wasn't good at um I'm, I, yeah i mean there were no doubt there was times where i struggled with pt i struggled on a run um Heck, I broke my foot in basic in AIT. Um, I, we went out on a run. I can remember it. I went to Fort McClellan was where I went to basic in AIT at. It do, doesn't exist anymore, but um, I uh, that's where I went. I I went running. We ran out to the hand grenade range, and on the way back, my my right foot started to hurt. I get back, and you know we're running upstairs to change, and my foot is just swelled up like a balloon, you know. And I go tell my drill sergeant, I'm like my foot's killing me and they sent me to um sent me to sick call you know and and uh they're like oh man you got a crazy stress fracture in your foot and uh so they put me in a soft shoe and and i mean we're going to the field during this time and i remember i'm out in the field in my soft. in fact my drill because it was a blue soft shoe bright blue soft shoe my drill sergeant he's like hey you got to paint that thing before we go to the field and so I had to get camouflage paint and paint it. And uh, so we're out in FTX five, for our final one. And I remember we're digging foxholes and cause that's what we did back then. And um, we're digging this fighting position and my first aren't comes around and he's like, he, you know, I mean, his words essentially were, Hey private, what in the world is on your foot? You know? And I, and he was like, oh, hell no, you got to go put a wet weather boot on. So I had to put a wet weather boot on. I, he wouldn't let me hobble around out there with a, because I mean, really, my foot was just out there in a sock, right? In a soft shoe. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, and I was scared. I, I was fearful that they were going to, I'm, I remember there's weird things I can remember. I, I remember asking my drill sergeant, are you going to recycle me? Because now I'm, you know, I got this foot in this boot and he's like, you just keep doing what you're doing and you'll be okay. And, and I was, I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, and, and that probably hindered me graduating because like I said, I only did probably 45 pushups on my PT test to graduate, but I couldn't do PT for so long because I'm running around in this broken foot. So, um, you know, but same thing. I went, you know, I'll get to Fort Drum. I'm not a PT stud. I'm, I'm passing PT tests, but like I said, I've never been a 300 guy. Um, I just did my job, stayed out of trouble. 
that's probably the more important part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you remember some old buddies from your first duty stations and some antics and some craziness? You know, were you a single guy back then? I was. Uh, I mean, heck, I didn't. I didn't get married. I'm I'm kind of an anomaly in the army. So, and I say that in the sense of I didn't get married till I was 35 years old. Um, and uh, I keep in touch with guys from my past you know even my first duty station my first team leader i still know who he is he retired as a as a i think as a e7 um we keep in touch still you know obviously social media helps that um but i'll tell you one of the funny things is um so i, I went to fort drum as a private right first duty station there i am well then i go to the sergeant major academy and i graduate there in 20 uh 2014 and where's my first assignment as a SAR major? Back at Fort Drum. Well, I go back to Fort Drum as the DES, the Directorate of Emergency Services SAR major. And uh, it was kind of weird because I walk into the, the PMO, physical security area, and uh, there's a guy in there working. He's a civilian. And, isn't it? and so I walk in, I see him. He looks at me. I'm like, oh, King B. And that, that's his name, right? Well, he was my platoon sergeant when I was a private and now he's a physical, you know, and he's not anymore. He's moved on now, but uh, he lives in uh, a different state now, but he was a physical security inspector. And I'm like, Hey, he's like, he just looks at me like, are you freaking kidding me? Like this dude was a private and now he's a damn sergeant major. And I just looked at him and I was like, guess who's in charge now? <laughs> so, but another thing too, uh, kind of weird is we lived, out on the back 40 of the installation and in building p30 and um so during my tenure there as the dsr major i had i had to be the interim garrison sergeant major for a little while and so sure enough one day i was out doing some building inspections or something and i was like hey i want to go to this building because i want to go see my old barracks and i did i walked in there and it still looked the same i mean it had been repainted or whatever and and whatnot but i was able to go see my first barracks room when i was a private um you know check talk to the kid that lived there now you know the soldier that was living in there um but yeah i mean we, you know we the army back then was different than it is now um and i don't say that in a bad way i say that in the sense of um you know back then we probably did more barracks partying um because we didn't have social media we didn't have video games necessarily i mean some people had a, a nintendo or a, a, a sega or you know whatever existed back then um, but you know, we, we probably did a whole lot more hanging out, you know, and, and even, uh, it's a conversation I have, uh, with people about the mental health of soldiers today. And I tell them, I say, Hey, you know, I'm a firm believer that, um, soldiers back, like, I think back then, like, I'm going to use my hand here to represent something, but so let's say this is balance. This is just normal life, right? Like, um, and I, I think that, that this is how we used to live and we would fluctuate to highs and lows. Right. But what would happen is, so you're living here, you're partying in the barracks. It's a good time. Then you're back here living normal. And then something depressing happens in your life and you get a little depressed. Right. Well, back then, if you got depressed, what'd you do? You walk down the hallway, bang on your buddy's door. Hey man, my girlfriend broke up with me or whatever the, the, the drama is in your life at that time. And they're like, screw that. Let's go party. Right. And so you'd go to the local club or you go down to the day room and, and just, and, and they bring you back from, from depression up to normal. Right. Well, the conversation I have with a lot of people now is that, that I think because of video games and social media, people live in a depressed state 
and and that's normal but but depression is normal now and so what happens though is that today's soldier lives in the barracks they're more secluded because we we divide them give them their own living space now they get depressed and now they become really depressed because they're already depressed that's normal now they become really depressed well the problem is they don't walk down the hallway and tell their buddies they sit in their barracks room and they are you know just sulking their problems instead of going down there and talking to their buddy and their buddy being like screw it let's go party and that's unfortunate because I think that leads to a lot of those problems. So I think that's probably a big difference of what, how life was then versus now. I'm into that. I, I agree. I remember praying many nights about some of my soldiers. I had high risk soldiers that I was worried about at times when I was a leader, you know, that, that, you know, you had to, I remember as a first sergeant, my command sergeant major would, when he would call me in his office. He goes, when something goes bad with one of your soldiers, who's it going to be? And I'm like, what? He's like, something's going to go bad at some point. Who's it going to be? What's it going to be? And I'm like, oh, uh, uh, and I'd have to give him a name. And what would happen? And he'd say, go stop that from happening. I'm like, okay, all right, Sergeant Major, I got it, you know? But that was, it was very direct marching orders that this particular Command Sergeant Major gave me, but it made me broaden my view. Yeah, yeah. I got to be a sponge somehow. And yeah. Yeah. So, hey, great observation. Thanks for sharing about about, you know, what you're thinking. What tell me about some some good times you had in the military. Did you have some great teams you were on? Oh, yeah, you had some wonderful yeah. mentors. I mean, you know, I, I got lucky, I think um, when I showed up to my first duty station, my first team leader. Well, he was an awesome team leader. He didn't treat me like crap, you know, like he treated me like the person that I was. And I will tell you, like in a way that could have been to a detriment because then I had a second team leader and he was really put there. Cause he's like, you're too buddy, buddy with your team leader. Uh, I looking back, I can buy that a little bit, but I think it set me up for this success of not thinking the army sucked, you know, like I, you get a lot of soldiers that show up and their team leaders treat them like crap from jump. And then they're like, this sucks. Why do I even want to be here? Um, so I had good team leaders. Um, I, then I, I, uh, so I went from Fort Drum to Germany. I had a good team leader there. Uh, I'm still friends with him. He's a cop out in the San Diego area now. But, um, so then I left Germany, went recruiting. That was its own beast. I mean, recruiting is the toughest job in the army. I tell anybody that you, you couldn't get me to go back to recruiting. Um, you couldn't pay me enough to do that. You could pay me enough to go be a drill sergeant again, but not to be a recruiter. Um, and then, from uh from recruiting i mean i mean the people i recruited with they were cool i mean I, you know it's it's its own world though it's different so then obviously uh, 9 11 happens i went to fort campbell and that's probably where my tightest most fun time in the army was because we're deploying you know i mean oaf1 kicks off i mean we went to afghanistan right when it kicked off we turn around we come back then iraq kicks off you know um a, a year later we go right back to iraq um, and those are, you know, my best friend, he, he was from that era. Um, he's a state representative out in Oklahoma now. Um, but we talk weekly and, and man, it's just the times we had were incredible. Um, we deployed together. He wound up getting shot, um, and, uh, injured and evac'd out of Iraq. I was in that firefight with him. So you just have that bond. Um, but every weekend, we're barbecuing we're hanging out at each other's house you know and even to this day we bounce everything off each other we still have that 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 heavy bond um 
then I, I, uh, I mean, that, like I said, that was probably the, the tightest and most fun time I had in the army. Then I was a drill sergeant after that. Um, so Oh four, Oh five, Oh six era. I was a drill sergeant. I was actually a drill sergeant at Fort Jackson. A lot of MPs down there though, surprisingly enough, because MPs train at Fort Leonard Wood, but, um, we had a lot of MP drill sergeants. I'm friends with them still. Um, and we were tight too. I mean, we had a good crew of drill sergeants. We'd all just come back from war from OIF one. And so we understood the reality and not, not to say that the generation before us didn't understand the reality. They just unfortunately didn't have the experience of being able to go and do it, you know, and, and it caused some drama between the new generation of drill sergeant and that previous, the, the, the generation that didn't go to war yet. Trust me, there was some drama there. Um, but, but those guys understood being drill sergeants and we understood going to war and, and, um, it worked out at, in the long run, you know, um, but we had good time being drill sergeants. Um, that's probably the most, like being at Fort Campbell was fun, but being a drill sergeant was a lot of fun because you, as long as you care about training Joe, you know, and you're not there to treat him like crap. Um, and then uh, I went to, I was at Fort Riley after that. I spent a lot of time at Fort Riley. I was at Fort Riley for like seven years as a platoon sergeant, an op sergeant, a first sergeant. Then I, got selected to be sergeant major so i left but i deployed a company as a first sergeant that to me was a lot of fun um, we owned our own base camp uh, we had a lot of fun with it um our battalion leadership always used to say oh that's the taj mahal out there you're right because we put the energy and time into making it worth being at you know it wasn't big kandahar or bagram it was a little base camp but we made it good life you know and and i had soldiers that had to live outlying in police stations and life sucked for them but we would when they got a chance to come see home, the base camp, you know, our, our cop Sherndam, we wanted to make sure that, that it was worth coming to, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I tell people all the time, like, I love my time in the army. It, when I retired, it was time to retire. I was more than happy to retire. Also don't get, don't be fooled, but I didn't retire because I, I had an issue with the army. I retired because I was just ready to do something else. And the cost benefit was more beneficial to me just to get out. Yeah. I, I had a very, very similar decision uh, at the time when I, when I decided to get out, it wasn't like I was mad with the army or nothing, but it was just, just time to go and do other things. And I'm glad I did. Tell me if you don't mind, I want to, I want to take you back to, I want to take you back if you don't mind eventually to, you know, pulling the trigger on your weapon, you know, when you were at war at the bad guys. But before that, tell me a little bit about drill sergeant school. Did, did you enjoy drill sergeant school? That's got to be a weird thing, right? Um, it was, um, you know, I went through drill sergeant school, like I said, right after IF one. And I think the, the biggest struggle for drill sergeant school was one back then we wore BDUs still. And so I'd been gone downrange for a year wearing desert uniform, um, DCUs back then. And, um, so then we go to drill sergeant school and it's like, Oh, you gotta have these highly pressed uniforms again. And you gotta have these nice shine boots. Well, for a while, my boots sucked, um, because they'd been just sitting in a closet for a year and they were pretty dried out, you know, coming back from, from, from war. And, um, but also like, I mean, drill sergeant school isn't, it wasn't hard to me. Obviously you got to know memorization because you got to pitch modules and whatnot. Um, to me, I think the harder part was there's a lot of people around you that can't swallow their ego. 
you know, there, I can remember Claire's day, people running, oh, I'm a star first class. Why is this guy talking to me? Like I'm a, and I'm like, just play the game, man. Like, you know why you're here, right? Like, like don't buck the system. Cause you're not going to win. You're not going to defeat. It's just like privates. You're not going to defeat the system. Um, you can come here and, and try to be hardcore, you know, back on the block all you want, but we're going to win. So, you know, you, you're, you're here for a reason, suck it up and just do it. So, um, and back then I went, I went to drill sergeant school at Fort Jackson. Um, and it was in a different location than it is now. So it was really weird because drill sergeant school was actually in the same footprint as incoming privates to Fort Jackson. Yeah, it was weird. And also like the soldiers that got injured and they had to go back to recover, um, whatever the FTC or whatever, I don't remember what it was, but these soldiers are injured. And so they have to just, it's a recovery area for them. Well, they would see us out there on the quad marching around, you know, looking all jacked up because some of us don't know how to march or we'd, we'd go to the same defect as these privates. Right. And so we're standing there being treated like privates, standing parade rest. And the drill sergeant leaders are like, pitch this module, pitch that module. And you're like literally standing next to a private and you don't know it. You're all jacked up. Right. Well then like later on, you you might run into that because they get released from recovery, right? So now they're they're fixed or and recovered. And like there was people out there that that private would be like, I know you, drill sergeant. You're like, you don't know me. And they're like, Yeah, you stood next to me in the chow line. And you're like, God dang, man. Like that was one of our biggest complaints because we're like, Hey, we eventually run into these privates and we looked like jackasses, you know, six months ago. And they know that. And it kind of ruins a little bit. So obviously drill sergeant schools moved to a different part of the installation now. And, and they don't, I don't think deal with that anymore, but, but that was probably the biggest weird part of drill sergeant school. I mean, I, I volunteered to be there. I wanted to be a drill sergeant. So I, I mean, I was along for the ride. It was good. That's cool. Um, yeah. So, so tell me about, you know, gearing up and people issuing you bullets and you, you, you know, going off to, to go fight the enemy in a foreign land. I mean, that's gotta be a, you know, I, I know it was tough for me when I, when, when they started doing those things. So how, what would you think about? Yeah. So, you know, I, I just come off recruiting, which was kind of weird, right? You're coming out of recruiting and now it's like, Hey, and, and Oh man, it's, it can be a long story. Um, I'll try not to make it too long, but um, I'll tell you this, understand this. First of all, I, when I went, so when nine 11 happened, I was on a bus as a recruiter on my way to the field. That may sound weird, right? Okay. Now here's why though. I was in PLDC when, um, now known as basic leader course, but I was in PLDC when 9-11 happened. So I went as a corporal on recruiting, got promoted to sergeant, went to PLDC at Port Knox. 9-11 happened to be the day we deployed to the field to do our field problem and do our land nav and all that kind of stuff. And so we're on a bus and we hear on the radio of somewhat something about something happening. Nobody really knew anything. I'm in the field for five days after that. So I will tell you that the impact to me for 9-11 is not the same as it was probably for you. I didn't sit at a TV and watch it happen. I didn't have to deal with the, oh my gosh, the world. I was literally out in the woods. I had no idea what was going on back in the free world, right? Like I'm just living in the woods. So anyhow, I, I graduate PLDC. I go back to recruiting. I clear. 
you know, now I'm like seeing what, oh my God, like, it's kind of weird to me. Like I'm driving around, there's American flags everywhere and you're in uniform and people think you're the greatest thing in the world. Whereas when I, when I went to PLDC, it was no 9-11 and no one cared, right? It was, I'm not joining the army. All right. So now I have PCS to Fort Campbell and I get there in October of 2001. And then like February, 2002, we go to Afghanistan. So that was really the first time that I dealt with deployment, like that type of, I'd been to Bosnia, I'd been to Panama, but that was like, oh my gosh, like this is the real deal. Right. And, um, so I go to, uh, we, my first deployment was, um, we went to Afghanistan. Our job was to transport prisoners from Kandahar to Cuba on a plane as military policemen. It was a joint venture between us and the air force. And so we had to go train up at Fort Dix for a while. And then we deployed, it wasn't a super long deployment, but we were like, you flew into Kandahar, you picked up prisoners in the middle of the night, you flew them back to Turkey, you put them on a different plane, then you flew them to Cuba. It was like a 24 hour flight straight through two or three in-flight refuelings. It's pretty wild, right? And that's the first, like, I mean, I'm standing from, you know, five feet away from these prisoners on this plane, you know, and they're all handcuffed and and blindfolded it was just pretty wild you know and 24 hours later you wind up and you land in cuba and hand them off to the marines and then they go put them in camp x-ray or whatever it's called um and that's where they stayed uh so we did that it was but it, like i said it wasn't a super long mission but we transport all those guys down there well then it, you know go back to fort campbell spend a year back at fort campbell go to aerosol school eventually get promoted to staff sergeant now oif is kicking off and, uh, I mean, I don't know that the surrealism was the same because it's, uh, it's Iraq and we weren't really fighting them yet. Right. Like, Hey, we've declared that we're going to go remove Saddam Hussein and that regime, but we're really just the 101st is deploying to Kuwait waiting to make the move. So we get there, um, and we're, we're in Kuwait for a little bit, you know, just in 10 cities waiting to cross the berm. And then all it was kind of weird though, because like all of a sudden one night they're just like, Hey, pack your shit, we're moving. And you're like, Whoa, wait a minute, what? Like, there's no warning, right? Yep, we're moving. Get get your stuff. I mean, I haven't had to go ask a platoon sign. Like, is, I was a squad there. I'm like, is this really happening? And they're like, Yep, this isn't a drill. Like, get your get your stuff together, we're going. And so uh, sure enough, we loaded up and we crossed the berm into Iraq and just started heading north uh, from Kuwait and um, went to a small town called Al Kut first and that was weird like the first night we rolled in there we get set up on this old air base and um and the first night we go in the city they made a curfew they're like hey there's a curfew no men male males over the age of 18 are allowed in the city after dark or whatever and so we load up in our humvees and we go rolling into the city and it's just like we are taking the city over so i just remember like rolling down the main street and all of a sudden you saw these guys out in the street and we just bam come rolling up in our humvees jump out guns drawn get on the ground we're just yelling at them all to lay down lay down lay down and we're just handcuffing them and taking them back to the police station and there's really no police station because we're having to establish it and it was pretty chaos you know it was pretty chaotic for the first week or two and then we kind of got our systems established and now we're just out patrolling and trying to train the police on how to be policemen and and we did that and 
anyways, we were there for six months. It wasn't too bad there. We had a couple incidents with, I remember one, not in my platoon alone, but there was a platoon that a guy, someone dropped a hand grenade into, into the, he was on a security point at the police station and there was higher buildings around us. Anyway, somehow someone had dropped a grenade in there. And I remember that, you know, like it didn't kill him. It just injured him. But, um, uh, then, but then at six month mark, we moved to Karbala, Iraq. And, um, that was a whole different beast, big city, uh, 101st had already rolled through there and take, you know, kind of eliminated every threat in the city. Now we were going up there to establish the policing operations. Um, and so we rolled up there, um, and that was, a, you know, like I said, bigger scenario. Um, I, uh, my platoon was the lead element going up there to get established on this base camp outside of the city, which we did. And, um, and then we spent the last six months there and that was, I mean, it was heavy there, you know, I'm a bigger city, like I said, a little more, a bigger threat. Um, our first firefight really, I mean, there were, that we got into was on October 16th of 2003. Um, that's where we got uh, essentially ambushed by about 200 guys, high rise buildings all around us. Um, it killed my battalion commander. He was killed in that firefight. Um, at the time he was the highest ranking American soldier to be killed in, in Iraq. Um, like I said, my best friend got shot multiple times. Um, and uh, we lost two other soldiers, a guy named uh, Sergeant Sean Grilly and a Staff Sergeant Joseph Bellavia. So three guys got killed in that firefight. Uh, obviously, the big thing was, oh, my gosh, your battalion commander got killed. You know, <laughs> not what you expect, you know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that was probably that was the first real like, holy crap, man. Like, you know, this is what you've been training to do. And now it's real. <laughs> Uh, oh, so where were you when the, you know, tell me that story, if you don't mind, do you mind telling me your, no, your I'm story? Telling it. so here's the story. Um, so we rolled into Karbala in, uh, beginning, uh, well, probably September of 2003. And at the beginning of October, I was out on patrol. So I'm a squad leader and in the MP world, probably like other MOSs too but in the MP world the the mission is driven around squad leaders out patrolling and um so I was out patrolling and we rolled through this checkpoint in the in the city and um my trans my interpreter he was like hey there's uh those guys had weapons back there and I was like what so we roll back around the block, we come back through it. And so it's really an illegal checkpoint. And right by that checkpoint is a mosque and it's in the middle of the city. And so I'm like, oh crap. So we pull our trucks over, I jump out, all my team leaders jump out, we lock and load, we draw down on these guys and we're like, put your weapons on the ground, you know? And well, like all of a sudden, 10 guys turns into like 200 guys. They're like coming out of the woodwork, like out of the alleys. And there was like a bunch of guys laying on the sidewalk in front of these buildings but they were just laying there like they didn't look like a threat well as soon as we drew like they all got up and they had like these giant swords and guns <laughs> i mean it was a wild right and i'm like i look i literally remember like i look around i look at my team leaders and i'm like get back in the trucks get back in the trucks right so we jump in the trucks and uh because i'm like we're way outnumbered and we're just going to get our butts handed to us so 
jump in the truck and we leave. And I call back to my talk and, and I, my, my first sergeant, he was out in the city that night patrolling with his own squad. And so I uh, called him up and I'm like, hey, this just went down. Like, this was crazy. Like, you know, we almost walked into a, 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 a storm of fire here. So they sent it up to hire and it came back and they're like, hey, just leave them alone. Um, apparently it's like a mosque leader that, that lives there. Um, and they, there's another unit that was there before us that caused some issues with them. And so it's a pretty tense situation and we're going to deal with it politically. Okay. So I go about my business. Well, two weeks later, um, there is another mosque in the city and there's like two factions that are war at, at war in the city over this mosque. And like, so we're not, we're just kind of told, Hey, don't go patrolling in that area because it is a war over there. And it was like, they're just like, they're RPG and the crap out of each other. There's gunfire in the streets. You know, they're just, boy, whoever it was, these two factions are fighting over this mosque. Well, the, my battalion commander comes up to deal with this kind of on the political level. Right. And, um, I remember driving over to that mosque, it, the firefighting had kind of stopped. And so I remember driving over there and there's security all around. And the, my battalion commander is dealing with that, the, 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 the war fighting mosque. And, um, meanwhile, um, there's that other group is over there still running their illegal checkpoint. And apparently there was a conversation between the, my battalion commander and a platoon leader about dealing with that. And the, the platoon leader's like, well, we were told to stay away from it because they're going to deal with it politically. And the battalion commander essentially was like, you can go fix it or I'll find somebody that will. Well, you know, you're going to, you, you challenge that platoon leader. So he sends a squad over there and that squad is what has, um, uh, Sarn Bellavia in it. So they're over there trying to deal with, you know, whatever. At this time, I'm rolling into the city um, because we worked in shifts there. You know, you had one platoon at the police station for eight hour shifts every day. So as I'm rolling into the city, I go right. There's a traffic circle right by that area. And I see Bella Via squad there. And I'm like, what are they doing? Like, they're not supposed to be there. We were told to leave it alone. Well, I didn't know all the other backstory at that time. All right. Well, it's my night to work at the police station. Two other squads patrol the city while one runs the police station. So I keep driving to the police station. Um, I go there. I get set up. And meanwhile, over the radio, Sergeant Bellavia is like, hey, I think I've got them to put their weapons down. You know, I think like, but I need some more people over here. Like, it's just my squad. I need some more help. Well, the battalion commander, he's his squad. He's done dealing with whatever he was dealing with at the other mosque. He says, I'll go over there. So he drives over there. And now he's dealing with them, right? So you got Bellavia squad, the Colonel Orlando's security squad, and then my first aren't, uh, his squad went over there also. So they're all set up over there. They're all dealing with these guys. I'm at the police station. I'm talking to the, and I walk in there and this, the platoon leader for that platoon is there. And I'm like, why are you over there? Like, we're not supposed to be over there. And he's like, this is why I'm there. Blah. You know, he explains the situation to me and I'm like, okay. Well, and then he's, I'm like, well, 
he goes they're right here and he like pointed at this spot on the map and i'm like no they're not right there they're right here and like no sooner than i touch the map all of a sudden like because they're about three blocks away you just hear boom boom like all these explosions and then a bunch of gunfire and i'm like what in the world just happened um so i look at my platoon sergeant who's in the police station with me and we're like doing our transfer out with that platoon you know so they can leave and I just look at him. I'm like, can I go? Can I go? And he's like, go get, get in your trucks and go. So I run back out to the back of there. I'm like, tell my team leaders, get in the trucks. Let's go. So we load up quickly and we go hauling ass over to where the direction of this firefight. So what, what had happened out there was they had a conversation. They'd gotten these guys supposedly to agree to put their weapons down, whatever. Well, my, battalion commander's squad rolls up there he gets out of his truck and now he's having this conversation with the bad guy leader i guess that's the best way to describe it um and he's like uh somehow the conversation degrades more and more um and my first aren't he's standing there with his rifle and so they're all kind of it's like you know showdown at the aok corral or whatever and uh, one of the bad guys essentially tells my first aren't put your weapon down. And the first aren't like, that ain't happening, right? Well, somehow it escalates immediately to this dude raises up his weapon and they're like, oh shit. Well, my best friend, he's the PSD squad leader for the battalion commander. So he's standing right next to the, the battalion commander and all hell breaks loose. Gunshots start going off. The colonel and my and staff sergeant west who's my best friend they get shot go down fall on the ground and uh so josh west sergeant west is shot in the legs he can't get back up colonel lando has been shot can't really see where um and the, all the other trucks like all hell breaks loose they just they got saw gunners right and so they just turn to the left and right and just start mowing people down and it's just and now it's like the bad guys they're in these two and three story buildings around the area and so they just start coming up out of the windows and they're just raining down hand grenades and rpgs are firing and gunfire from everywhere so now i'm hauling ass over there and by the time i roll up in there um the uh the fire the gunfire had kind of there was a lull in it right so i go i pull up on the scene i jump out i go over i talk to my first sergeant because he's his truck is backed out of the firefight i run over to him and i'm like what's going on and he's like i need everybody out of the kill zone and i'm like okay and there's trucks up in the middle of the road still i can see them it's dark out all the power has been shut off in that area all of a sudden the power went out um, my first sergeant's gunner she'd taken some shrapnel to the face well i just happened to have the medic in my truck so i run over and grab the medic and i'm like go fix her you know and so she comes out of the turret and she's all bloody and so anyhow i go and tell my truck i'm like hey um we got to get these guys out of the kill zone and uh so i'm like i'm gonna go in dismounted you keep the truck between me and everything on the right side of the road so i'm staying on the left side of the truck right and i don't know why i made that decision my assumption looking back on it is if I'd gotten back in the truck, I couldn't see, feel, hear, smell, you know, like all my senses are blocked by the truck, you know? So I start, so now I'm walking next to the truck. We're going slow and I get to this alley. There's an alley on my left 
just before I get to the mosque building, right as I get to that alley, all of a sudden I hear a whoosh and I see a flash of light. And then there's an explosion on the right side of me. Well, what had happened was there was two guys in that alley to my left. And as I'm driving, walking up, they fired an RPG at us. It went right over my head, right by my gunner, and then blew up in the alley on the right. So I'm like, oh, shit, right? I turn and look down that alley, and I tell my, my – so my gunner, he turns that way, and uh, I'm like, fire him up. So he just starts putting – he put like 92 rounds down that alley, and uh, it was two guys underneath a light pole. And so I'm like, did you hit him? He's like, or I tore up that light pole. <laughs> and I'm like, well, okay. Well, because of that, now the shit hits the fan again, right? Like gunfire started, so it just blares up again. So now, and I'm like trying to get, because now it's just gunfire from everywhere. So I'm trying to get back in the truck now. I open the back door. I jump in. He drive, my drive, I tell my driver, drive forward again. So now he's kind of rolling into the kill zone. Well, at that time, all the other trucks are coming out of the kill zone. So they're backing out. I jump back out of the truck. I run up to the first truck that I see. I open up the back door. There's a guy slumped over in the back seat. The driver, he's all dazed and confused. I'm like, who is this? And he's like, he's like, he's been hit. And I'm like, no shit, who is it? And he's like, it's Bella Villa. So I grab Bella Villa and I kind of pick him up. And he's assumedly dead. I, I say that for a reason. I put him back down. I, you know, I let him go and I'm like, just get the hell out of here and, you know, get him evac. So he evacs him out. And by this point, everybody's starting to pull out of the kill zone, right? So we've laid down enough cover fire now that we're getting everybody out of there, right? The colonel, his squad had already evac'd him out. He was on his way back to our base camp. Um, so now my truck backs out and I'm running next, you know, out with the truck. So we're out of the kill zone, right? Well, there's a lull again and I'm like, all right, I got everybody. I got all the, all the trucks are out of there. And I go to run over to my first orange truck again. He's like across this median. So I go to run over to his truck. And as I'm running towards him, he like turns around and leaves. And I'm just like, okay. So now I'm like, it was kind of surreal, but I'm like standing under this street light. All the trucks are leaving. And I'm just out there in the open. There's, like I said, there's a lull in the fire, but I just start yelling at my gunner. His name was Lane. And I'm like, Lane, Lane. And he will not, he's like, you know, he's trained on looking at the kill zone, right? To make sure no enemies coming towards us. But I'm like trying to get his attention because I'm like, bring the truck over here because I'm just out in the dead open underneath the street, like, you know, waiting to get shot essentially. And, and so I'm like, Lane, I'm just yelling at him. Finally, he looks over at me. He's like, you can just see his face. He's like, oh, shit. And he looks down in the turret and tells the driver, take the truck over there. So they turn around and I run over and jump in it. And, and uh, then we, you know, head back and we reconsolidate at the police station. And, um, you know, bottom line is we got everybody out of there. Unfortunately, we lost those three. Um, but they evac, you know, Colonel Orlando and Sergeant West back to, and I, I think, Bellavia wound up going back there and and anyways we did evac some people to the police station there was one guy he'd been shot right underneath his vest and it went into his spine and so he was having some paralysis issues um I mean so that was that was the that was the first real you know reality of 
fighting, you know. Um, so yeah. So so did you did you find out if you ever hit those guys at the streetlight with the saw? I don't know. Um, and you don't stick around long enough, you know. And I'll tell you, like some some people out there will say I'm crazy and that oh you're full of shit, but unless you're a sniper, it's really hard to know that you have a confirmed kill. You know, it's it's just blaze of glory and you're just fighting your butt off to to get out of there and unless you look someone dead in the face and you know you shot them um you're probably not sure if you shot them <laughs> um you know you just hope that you get everybody out of there and you went to to fight another day and and we did you know um we uh like i said unfortunately we lost some people those people that got that, that were killed uh colonel orlando and and sergeant billabia and sergeant Gurley, um you know they were in the fight right like they're in the beginning of it when the 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 it hit the fan and um so it's just a uh, truly unfortunate loss but um and even those guys that got injured you know i mean josh he still deals with it and and the guy that got shot in his spine his name's uh, mike he you know they they and sanchez the the gunner for the first time they deal with it still obviously mentally probably more than anything um but so I don't know if we call, if we killed those guys, you don't stick around to find out, right? You uh, fight, 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 and then when you're able to say you probably got out of there and won, and ultimately uh, they brought a whole armored brigade into the city. Uh, I just remember our base, our our camp filling up with uh, a bunch of tanks and Bradleys, uh, more than I'd ever seen. I mean, I, you know, in my career, and and they we did a big brief, and I I will say like after um after this firefight happened um the you know obviously the battalion commander's killed so the xo of the battalion becomes the battalion commander um and he comes up and the sergeant major comes up they were down in uh hilla at the time so they come up well i had to drop for the like the next three days i had to drive the battalion commander around to all these meetings because like general sanchez who was in charge of all iraq at the time he comes flying down there and we have to go to all these briefings. Well, I was the last um, element in, in the fight. And so I had to like go and brief, like what happened? Why did it happen? I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm just some, you know, staffs aren't rolling around there trying to explain to people like, that's what happened. This is why, this is where we went, whatever. And um, anyhow, they eventually brought in that armor brigade and they rolled into the city and cleared the city again, building by building. Uh, so yeah, we dealt with that. And then, um, it was pretty quiet until December. And then our, um, base camp got car bombed our, so our camp plus the police station, plus the Bulgarian compound all got car bombed simultaneously in December. Um, and I wasn't, I wasn't there at the time. I was actually, um, going to an Audie Murphy board at the time. So yes, Audie Murphy boards didn't stop because we were in war. Um, and it was probably harder because I'm trying to fight the fight and study for an Audie Murphy board. Um, and so I was up in uh, Mosul at the time um, competing for, and ultimately got accepted into the Audie Murphy club. Um, and then in January of 2004, um, they have a big um, uh, pilgrimage to Karbala it's kind of like their Mecca right and um so we were in in Karbala and um 
they are uh there's like a million people that come to the city of Karbala. there's these two big mosques that we're not allowed to go near uh it's all cordoned off uh so americans aren't allowed near them anyhow they're like hey we're gonna stay on our base camp for like uh this week however long that pilgrimage was so we're there and all of a sudden out in the distance we hear these explosions just faint like boom boom we were all kind of like what in the world is going on so we're sitting there on the on the perimeter garden so that they make us all push out to the perimeter to guard our base camp because we're like what the heck's going on well after about an hour my first sergeant comes to me and he's like hey you got your squad here i'm like yeah he's like i need you to go in the city and figure out what happened i'm like okay <laughs> interesting so we load up our trucks you know go rolling down the highway and um we had to like go in this back way into the city because there's just so many people it's just a million people in the city Eventually it gets to a point where I can't drive anymore. So I get out and now I'm dismounted and we're walking along. We'll come to find out there were a bunch of suicide bombers that came into the city and they were just walking up into crowds, blowing themselves up. And this was like the first time this, the country had seen suicide bombers, right? There hadn't been a tactic used yet. And I'm like, what in the world? So I'm like walking down the street and like all these Iraqis are like, mister, come over here. You know, they're like, show me a pile of shoes and this giant blood spatter on the ground and i'm like what and they're like they're like you know boom boom and i'm like i'm confused at like what because we hadn't heard of this tactic right and i'm like suicide bombers and they're like yes yeah you know my translator's trying to translate for me and and sure enough man like we got hit by about five or six suicide bombers so now i'm like walking around going i hope another dude doesn't just walk up to me you know and uh it was really like i'll tell you some weird stuff like um i'm walking through the city and like they just come up to you they got a bag right they open up the bag and there's just the, one of the suicide bombers heads in there they're like here's his head and i'm like what <laughs> like okay thanks you know like um so i see it and they're like and then it disappears right well then all of a sudden this lady comes up to me and which is odd in iraq that a lady's talking to you but she's in like full you know looks just like she blends in with everybody else and she has full burqa on, you know, and um, she walks up to me and this is literally what I hear. So what happened here? What, what did you just say? What happened here? I'm like, who are you? Oh, I'm so-and-so from the Associated Press. So she's like a reporter out there, but she's like fully dressed up, right? So I tell her, I'm like, oh, you know, we think it's suicide bombers. You know, I'm just giving her info. But like, it was really weird because I'm like, this lady just talked normal English to me and she got her story, asked me who I was and boom, gone. She disappeared. And later on, there's an article out there about it. Um, that, you know, I talked to staff sergeant Van Cleek, you know, I'm like, I mean, you know, you know what you're allowed to say and what you're not allowed to say, but, um, so, but then like a, like a week later, a CIA came to our camp and I had to go be interviewed by them. And they're like, so what, what did you see? And I'm like, Oh, you know, I walked through the city and I saw, you know, I'm explaining everything. And I tell them about this, uh, they walked up to me with this head in a bag and they were like, did you get the head? And I'm like, no, I didn't get the head. And they're like, we really wish you would have gotten the head. Like then we would have been able to identify who these people were. And I'm thinking, well, sorry, but I don't work for the CIA and I wasn't lugging some dude's head around in a bag, <laughs> you know, like, but I didn't think that way, but sure enough, I should have gotten the guy's head. So, um, you know, that was January. And then we redeployed back home in April. So that was probably, you know, the brunt of that whole adventure for OIF-1 for sure.
Oh wow, that's amazing. That that I, it just it's just baffling to. So you you were there when the, when the first suicide bomber started, right? Wow. Yeah, I mean, from what we recall, they were like everyone was kind of confused like what suicide bombers and it's kind of like um ieds right so um you know ieds weren't there at the beginning right it was just like all of a sudden one day you started hearing these rumors and we had a guy he was rolling down the highway and got hit by an ied and you're like what is this ied thing well back then it was just like fuel cans they would bury in the road and blow up right it wasn't anything technical um but it was like a new tactic we'd never even heard of. And same thing, the suicide bomber thing was a tactic we hadn't even heard of. And here I am walking around looking at blood spatters on the ground and shoes everywhere. So it was pretty wild. You watched communications develop over your career. If you came in in the mid nineties, you know, you saw Singar's radios, you know, mm -hmm. transition you know, all the way to real squad intercommunications, right? Yep. Tell me about that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's uh, uh, my first deployment was, you know, back in, uh, you know, oh, real first point, oh, three that we dealt with private communications. Obviously, like I said, I went to, I transported prisoners, but we did it on, did it on a plane, totally different. But you know, but and by by the time OIF one hit, we were using ASIPs, you know, the smaller version of the Singars. Um, so, but that was really like when we first started using headsets, right? Like you had headsets used inside the trucks. We were using Humvees. We didn't have um, uh, we didn't have MRAPs or anything like that yet. Um, and communications were rough, you know. I mean, I can remember um, actually when when we were in. We were in Karbala. I'm a squad leader. Um, and uh, they were like, hey, we need you to go to this town south of Karbala. It's like halfway between Karbala and Hilla. And we just need you to go make contact with the police down there and kind of figure out. We've never talked to those police down there. What are they doing? What what do they have for equipment? What's their, you know, what's the crime like down there? And so, okay, I go rolling down there. And I'm telling you right now, I was out of, out of communications with anybody for six hours because the ASIPs didn't reach all the way back to, you know, Karbala. And, you know, we would do radio checks, radio checks. Eventually, you weren't getting a response. And then you're just down there in this town like, I hope we don't get attacked, you know. I mean, um, and then, uh, you know, and then I deployed again in um, 2000. Um, 08, 2008. I was there for 15 months deployment from 08 to 09 in Iraq, in Baghdad this time, and communications were better. We were still using kind of the same radios though. But then when I went, I I, re, I deployed again to Afghanistan in 2012 as a first sergeant, and um, they were bringing in like my my squad leaders had cell phones with GPS maps built into them. And I don't know, I'm not a communications guy, right? I'm not a signal guy. Um, so I don't know a ton about it, but no doubt you saw that progression. As a private, I'm using the the Singars, right? The, the, you know, put it in a man pack and carry that sucker in a rucksack, right? That's what you had to use um, to, okay, now OF1, where ASIPs are part of the, the scheme. And now, you know, they grow and you get a little more commu communication. But then, like I said, when I... 
the point in 2012, my squad leaders were starting to get these, uh, I don't want to say cell phones, but that's probably not the right answer, like tablets, you know, and they were putting those into the trucks and using these tablets to get around. And, and I mean, from, oh, I think, I think in OF1, we used um, BFTs, Blue Force trackers, right? Um, and, but as time went on, they got more advanced also. Um, I didn't personally, my team leaders used them. I didn't, I didn't have, I've rolled with a team leader, so I didn't really personally use one, but, but yeah, no doubt communication and the way we battle track definitely grew. And, and I saw it from being a squad leader out there on the ground, fighting the fight to in 2008, 2009, I'm a, I'm an operations sergeant running the talk, right. Um, seeing it from that side, BFTs and mapping and whatnot, to then, okay, now I'm a first sergeant in 2012, and I'm not necessarily in the talk every day because I'm out doing A-lock stuff, but I'm watching those guys and what they're tracking with, and it definitely grew, definitely changed over time. Tell me about being a first sergeant and deploying to combat. Um, it was fun. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think I was a good first sergeant. You're not going to please everybody. You know, I mean, uh, there's some soldier out there that probably thinks I was the worst first sergeant on the planet and that's okay. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, but you know, we deployed to Afghanistan. I, like I said, I had some guys outlying areas, uh, but they were embedded into some police stations out there. Um, we had it good cause we lived on our own little camp. It was like my company plus 140 dying corps civilians. And then, um, yeah, it was really kind of interesting because they ran our DFAC and stuff. Um, my, my focus there was, and my focus as a first sergeant was really just, hey, these are the standards. I'm going to enforce them. Um, and then trying to make life enjoyable outside of the fight. You know, I will tell you this, the, the weird part um, about my deployment was I'm an MP company and it, and I don't know if you know what you know about the structure of an MP company, but we're large and we have everything embedded with us. I have cooks, I have supply, I have signal guys, I have um, mechanics, a lot of mechanics, right? Um, medics, they're all embedded with me. And um, so when I deployed though, I was attached to a cab squadron. Well, a cab squadron, they don't, they're not built the same way, right? They have, they're much smaller. They're like an infantry platoon. So they're much smaller. They have a support platoon that is all your support MOSs that kind of go out and help you. And so it was a little bit of a struggle because I'm like, like my operations cell for an M MP company back then was two master sergeants. So there's three master sergeants in a, in a MP company, uh, me as the first sergeant, and then two master sergeants plus two sergeant first classes working in my ops. Well, hell, that's almost as big as the whole cab squadron's op cell, you know? And so they would, they, we had some struggles because they would send down orders and, and a, a, I think a normal cab company troop, right? A cab troop. It's some staffs aren't in their op cell. Oh, hey, battalion said do this. We're doing it, right? And they execute. Well, you'd said stuff to us, and my guys are battle staff certified, and they're like, hey, this doesn't make sense, and they would fire stuff back, and they the cav squadron would get so pissed off at us because what do you mean you're not, you know, why are you firing back? Like, well, because your order doesn't make sense, and we're just, we're trained just like you, and 
that's not to badmouth them. It was just the reality of how we're trained versus how they're, because we're just, we're built to deploy on our own. Well, then like even one day, the, the battalion star major was like, hey, why are you not using the, the you know, what? he's like, why are you not using the support platoon to bring your supplies to you? And I looked at him and I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he's like, yeah, I have a whole platoon. They'll just bring you all your stuff. I'm like, Star Major, I have a whole platoon that that's what they do every day. They run log packs. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I have like four supply guys. I have medics. I, you know, they do that for me. I don't need you to do that for me. So it was, it was like, a, it was kind of weird. You know, it was a little growing pain and figuring each other out. And then I would just resource everything myself. And, and, uh, but anyhow, I mean, being a first arm was good. Um, unfortunately we lost, uh, we did lose one soldier. He died. Um, uh, honestly he died of a freak medical accident, but, um, l- let me tell you this. Um, I wrote a paper about this in the Academy when I went to the Sergeant Major Academy. Um, there's a, we always talk about second and third order effects. Right. And I, sometimes I like to ask soldiers all the time, like, what does that even mean? We say it, but what does it mean? Well, I'm going to give you an example. So I had a, a staff sergeant and uh, good, good staff sergeant, and um, he uh, got sick. Well, let me let me back that up. They were in an outlying area, and we finally got to pull them back to our base camp, right? Cop Sherman Dam is where we lived, and so we were able to pull them back. So they get pulled back. They're living with us now. Life is pretty good compared to where they were living when you're embedded in a police station. Life is pretty good. Well, this is around the time in 2012 that uh, an NCO from another unit in the Panjway district, he just like left his camp in the middle of the night, went out and killed some people. Um, I don't remember if he was a staff sergeant. I think he was a sergeant first class. Anyways, the dude just left his base camp, went out into the city and murdered people in their homes and then came back. He's in jail now for it, right? Well, because he did this, we were put on a no roll across the country because obviously the Afghani population is pretty pissed off, right? So they're like, hey, we can't roll anywhere. So um, at that same time, this staff sergeant's name's Grindy. Staff sergeant Grindy gets sick and he's got some stomach pain. And, but we couldn't evac him. Why? Because we're on a no roll. So I have medics on my, on my camp. And so they're trying to, you know, they're trying to diagnose him. They call Fob Walton where the next uh, like roll two or whatever it is, is, is where they're located. They wind up calling Kandahar where the roll one or three, whichever number it is, um, roll three, I think. Um, but they every bottom line is everybody's like, ah, oh, it sounds like it's uh, kidney stones. So they just tell him, you know, go lay in bed. Here's some painkillers, whatever. Well, he's not getting better. And the next day, some of my dying corps civilians find him passed out out by a portajon. And so he'd gotten up to go to the bathroom. He was in so much pain, he passed out. They scoop him up, bring him to the aid station. Well, in our world, as a first aren't, none of my guys are allowed to be out in sector. And so it's really like, oh man, this is kind of a relief. Like my guys are all home safe on the base, right? Like I'm, I'm living life, right? Like I don't have to anything to worry about. And all of a sudden you hear over the loud, the intercom, we have an intercom on our camp and they're like, all medics respond to the aid station. So I'm like, Whoa, what the heck is going on? Right? Like, why is, why are all my medics being called? 
So I go there and well, he's having issues. So they're trying to deal with him. They're trying to deal with him, figure out what's wrong with him. Um, and so now I'm like, I'm going to the talk because we need a medevac. So I get up to the talk and they're like struggling to get a medevac approved. They're like, Hey, we need a medevac. And they're like, we can't send a medevac. They're like, you're not hearing me. Like I need a medevac. We can't, no role. No one's allowed to leave, you know, whatever. I'm literally on the other side of the mountain from Kandahar. I can cross a mountain and be on calf. So at somewhere in there, um, Sarngrindy like throws up a bunch of blood and they're like, holy shit, like he's not good. So they load him up and they just start transporting him out to the, to the, the landing, uh, to the medevac site. And I'm like, what in the world is taking so freaking long to get a medevac here? Like this is, I'm not, I need a medevac, right? Well, bottom line is he essentially passes away on his way out to the, the, the landing to the LZ and they're like working on it. They're, you know, my medics are working their ass off to, to keep him alive. And all of a sudden, and now I'm like, what the hell? Like now I'm pissed because I just see him working on him. And I'm like, so I go over to start running back to the talk. And um, all of a sudden, these two helicopters just appear out of nowhere. So one just like, I mean, I'm I, like, I don't even know where they came from, but boom, there's two birds. One just starts flying overhead. You know, he's essentially pulling security. The other one slams on the ground. Well, it just happens that, so the, 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 the medic jumps out of that bird, runs over and is like, what do you need? And they're like, we need him on the, he's like, holy shit, get him on the bird now. So they put him on the bird. They're gone within 30 seconds. Um, bottom line is Sarn Grandy doesn't survive. Um, he does die. And, um, but that medevac wasn't even meant for us. What it is, is two PJ birds from the air force were out flying and just happened to hear us calling on the radio. Like we need a medevac. This isn't a, you know, we don't, this, we don't have a choice here. They just happened to hear it and they just diverted over to us, landed, picked them up and took them. Um, but my whole point to that story is that, in my opinion, Sargrindy's death is a second and third order effect of that idiot going out into the Panjway district and causing a no roll. Because he did that, we couldn't roll, and because of that, Sargrindy died. Because if we were not on a no roll, we would have evac'd him to Walton or Calf, and maybe they would have discovered what was wrong with him, and then he would have not been killed. And so I always use that as my example of second and third order effects. And they killed a soldier. So that guy has blood on his hands of going out and murdering Afghanis in their homes. But in my opinion, he has blood on his hands because my NCO died. So anyhow. Hey, I get it. Totally understand. Makes sense. Thanks for sharing that. You know, it's, yeah. it's tough to, it's tough to do a memorial service for a soldier. I, I had to do three as a first sergeant and, you know, that's tough, right? Yeah. So tell me a little bit as you, you know, you've retired and you're living the RV life and, and <laughs> doing all that stuff, you know, you and Amanda, tell me, you know, tell me a little bit about your patriotism. Um, I mean, I love, obviously I spent 24 years in the army, right? I mean, I love America. Um, and I love what we stand for. And, and um, you know, I'm pretty central of the road on politics. Um, so I don't get wrapped up in, in the political side of it too much. I mean, I think everybody's got their opinion. Um, 
but I will tell you, living this life, the the traveling life, um, there's a lot of America to see, and there's a lot of America that we don't ever see, and I think it's been pretty eye-opening to me as I've traveled. I went the southeast for the winter, um, but I'll tell you, like, I spent a month in Montgomery, Alabama, and it was eye-opening to really see, touch, learn about the beginning of the civil rights movement, right? Because that's where civil rights started was in Montgomery, Alabama. And so pretty eye-opening. Um, and then, you know, we, we've been up here in the north. We, we rolled up here in May. We spent a month in Duluth. And when we decided to go to Duluth, it was kind of like, what are you going to do in Duluth, Minnesota, right? Um, but we found a lot to do and going up to the boundary waters and just just learning about seeing things that you probably wouldn't. And I think it, it instills a little, even more patriotism in you because you live your army life, you know, oh, I, I bet I'm around military bases and all the people are like me. And, and, but then you come out here and, and I'm just seeing America, you know? Um, and uh, so, I mean, like I said, you don't do 24 years and not feel patriotic. Right. Um, but you know, and, I, and uh, yeah, I mean, that, that I think that's the biggest advantage to this lifestyle is I'm seeing America, a lot of America that you don't get to see. And we're going to and we're and we don't have a deadline. Like we just said, we're going to travel. We might be two years, might be 10 years, might be 20 years. Um, and our, you know, our goal, you know, so we're here, you know, through the summer up north. Our goal is, like I said, 70 degree weather. So. Then our goal next year is travel the Southwest, um, wind up over in the Northwest uh, next next year, uh, next summer up into the in the Northwest. But eventually we want to go to Alaska. Eventually we want to go up into Maine and the Northeast, and and um, you know we just kind of figured out as we go. Um, so yeah, when you were deployed and and you know all your times and. Who is it that prayed for you at night, you know, that, 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 that cared for you and sent you those care packages and those kinds of things, you know, do you, do you have a group behind you that, that, that really, uh, I mean, you know, you like that? I mean, obviously my parents, right. Um, especially OIF one and, and whatnot, um, to them, it's just as real because even though I grew up in an army family, it's not, you know, my dad was a cold war era guy. Right. And so you didn't really go to war. Um, Whereas I was probably, you know, I'm the first generation of, you know, my brother, my older brother, he went to Haiti, but same thing. It was like, uh, you know, you were going there to help the country out more than anything. Um, so, you know, my mom and, and my parents, you know, obviously they were, they had their own stress of, of life in it. I didn't get married until 2011. Um, and so, I mean, I probably had some girlfriends in there somewhere, you know, but, but, you know, then obviously my wife, you know, it's, it's the real deal to her too, that, Hey, I'm deploying all of 2012. Um, and, and I think that, I think the harder part is, for us to understand as soldiers is that we, we live that life every day. And so when we deploy, we just, we're just working our job, you know, and, and, and you don't realize the stress that it causes back on the home front. Cause you're just doing like, the thing is, most of your time deployed isn't very exciting. You know, it's pretty boring. 
uh, my, whether it's patrolling or just sitting around on the fob or, or pulling, you know, guard duty, it ain't super exciting, but they don't know that, right? Like your, your, your home front, they, they think every day is just this action. It, you know, it's like being a police officer, right? Like being a police officer, 99% of the time is just driving around being bored, but there's the 1% that's crazy. Um, and that makes up for the other 99, that's for sure. And I think the same thing with is probably true with most deployments. And I, and I know some deployments are rougher than others and you, they see more action, um, enemy contact than others. But, but in reality, the majority of your day isn't super exciting, but the home front doesn't know that. The home front just thinks that every day is stressful and you're out punching the enemy in the face, you know? So give us your best recruit. Let's, uh, so a couple of things as, as we begin to, uh, as we begin to like close this out, I, uh-huh. I, I've been having folks call their last unit to attention and then salute and sign out uh-huh. just to get that on tape on camera. I think it's awesome for a leader to call his unit to attention. I love that. Um, I would well, my last unit isn't very exciting, so it'd be hard to do that, but no, you just, you just say <laughs> battalion attention. No, I got right. you. It'll be all right. And then, um, you know, I don't know, you know, leave us, leave us with some advice that, that you might give to someone that, you know, that, that might be thinking about joining the army or making a decision to, to be, uh, serve their country or be patriotic in some kind of way. Give us a command sergeant major lesson, you know? (laughs) Um, I would say that, Look at the army as a job and I got it. It's all encompassing, right? I mean, I tell people all the time, Hey, as a leader, I had to care about everything that everybody did. And once you get out, it's kind of weird, right? Like my wife works a civilian job and I use this as an example. A lot of times I'm like, Hey, you know, like my wife works a civilian job and this lady that she works with a few years ago, got a DUI right and out so I'm like oh my gosh like what did you have to do you know what do they do for her? what and, and my wife's like we don't do anything like she better be at work on Monday right <laughs> I'm like what that's just unheard of in our world and so I get it that it's all encompassing when I but but I think the I think what we what we sometimes fail to do is make people understand that the army's a it's a job it's a career and it's something to be proud of doing don't look at it and nothing annoys me more than ah like like it's a lesser choice than other choices because i can tell you this right now that the opportunity that's afforded you in the army whether it's moving away from home which is important i think get away from home, go do something else. Um, or if it's the college opportunity that's afforded to you, right? You're not paying for college loans and whatnot. Um, but, but while you're going to college, you're also getting a steady paycheck from the army. Um, but even beyond that, I'm 43 years old. This is my life. And, and I don't, I don't work. Um, when I say I don't work, I do manage a custom mill working company, 
right? Like we make a lot of farewell gifts for units and like, that's what we do, right? Our big thing right now is custom lasered canteen cups, right? Um, so I manage that with my brother-in-law, but being retired at 43, like, I, especially in this lifestyle, people see and they're like, we have Texas license plates. You're from Texas? Well, sort of. I full-time travel. How do you travel? You're, you look so young. Yep, I'm 43. But I dedicated a career to the Army, and now I can live this life. And I think that's the biggest thing I preach to people is it's not for everybody. We don't ask you to join for 20 years. There's a reason we don't ask you to join for 20 years. But quit acting, quit looking, or don't look at the Army as if it's the last option, because it's not. Um, you know, there's plenty of other options that are probably worse than the army and for what you get and to be able to retire at the age that you do, I don't know that it can be beat. That's my honest opinion, you know, unless you're walking into some huge corporation somewhere, but, um, I've, I've loved what I do and I, uh, I would encourage anybody to try it out and it's not for everybody, but, but don't look at it as it's the last option either because i will tell you i'm not a last option guy i'm a pretty smart dude and i'm pretty successful and at the age of 43 i make more money than mo than, than a lot of my friends do to do nothing why because i dedicated a career to the army <laughs> and that's reality you know so yeah i mean that's get after it you know i mean it's it, it's been a good it's been a good experience and i think the last thing i would tell somebody i didn't realize i didn't learn this until later on in life i think we've done an okay better job of of pushing this but invest learn the importance of investing at the age of 18 instead i started investing when i was 26 and i think that's probably just a lesson learned that i try to pass on to people is invest 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 because it will matter later on in your life you don't see it at the age of 18 because you're not supposed to because you're only 18 but i think those are probably my biggest lessons in life Absolutely. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll tell you just a few weird things, you know, I mean, uh, I've never drank in my life, so don't feel like you, I never have I drank. Like, I don't know what beer tastes like. Right. Um, so I just tell people that, you know, you don't, I've never drank. I've never been divorced. Um, I've never had an article 15. I'm the anomaly, <laughs> you know, I mean, so it can be done, you know, I mean, you, you, you can go out there and be a, you know, don't just don't think that that's what it's all about. Um, you don't have to get in trouble to, to succeed. You know, you don't have to, you know, just cause you're in the army doesn't mean it's just, you know, everybody's an alcoholic or in trouble. I've, I've battled depression. I've battled suicidal thoughts. I'm very open with that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm probably the most open senior leader when it comes to suicide prevention because I've been there you know, as a staff sergeant, I was that depressed. And, and the, so it can all be overcome. It's, you know, and, and you can have, a, and here I am today, I'm a retired command sergeant major, have a good time with it, you know, be successful with it. I love it. I love it. Thanks so much for sharing and spending some time with me. I really have enjoyed it very, very oh, much. Well, well, thanks for asking me to come on, man. It's, uh, it's been fun. I love telling my story. I think there's value in hearing it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate that you're capturing these stories. Cause I, I think, you know, we have this discussion, I've had this discussion a few times in my career of, you know, we've done a crappy job of capturing the story of the world war one, world war two, Korea, Vietnam, like they have stories to tell. And so I, I appreciate that you're doing this. this is awesome. Well, thank you very much. I'm enjoying it. 
look, getting to talk to wonderful guys and gals, you know, it is really cool. And there's so many heroes. Everybody has such an amazing story. So, so thanks. Close us out. Go ahead and call us to attention and, and, and salute and give us a good sign out. Wake up your neighbor. All right. Here we go. Italian. Tattooing. All out. Oh, I love it. Thanks, Sergeant Major. All right, brother. Good chatting with you. Good chatting with you. That was a blast. All right. Take it easy.